stress and depression are going to become or are becoming the number one. They are going to overtake cardiac disease, diabetes, uh, the whole lot. Uh, it, it's going to become the number one in the, in the 21st century. Hello, it's Doug Cairns here. Welcome to another episode of the Let's Talk Mental Health series, where we dive deeper into some of the most common psychological errors that can really challenge us with the added stress during this COVID-19 season. Today, I'm pleased to introduce clinical psychologist and coach Tony Degavea, and I'll be chatting to him about depression. I'd like to thank him for the time he's made for us. Tony practices at Akisa and Life Brackenview Clinics in Alberton. He's been serving this area in his discipline for over 35 years. He specializes in individual and family counseling, coaching and psychotherapy, and still finds time for group facilitation. He is the founder and facilitator of the Positive Psychology Group, which he set up in response to a need for a psychoeducational group facilitated by a psychologist in the south of Johannesburg. Today, he offers us a wealth of experience about the topic of depression. Stay tuned. Hi, Tony. Welcome to today's podcast. Yes, thanks, uh, Doug. Uh, Good evening, and uh, thank you for the invitation. Would you like to start off by just unpacking depression for us? When most of us talk about being depressed, we talk about feeling a little bit down or a little bit blue. But what exactly is depression? Well, it, it can be many things. And, and I think you've alluded to the, the range of experience that could be covered by the term depression, because we all have days where we feel a bit depressed, we, we feel a bit sad or things haven't gone totally our way, so we're not happy. And this mood can you know, last for a few hours or sometimes a whole day. Okay. So that's on the one end. But then when we get to a situation where for days on end, we experience this depressed mood, then we're starting to deal with something else. Then we're dealing with depression as, as a syndrome, which then if that depressed mood continues, can become what we call a a major depression with a whole set of symptoms. And obviously, most people will fit in with a former category where you may have a few bad days, but generally you get over it. But there are, and I think the figures vary, but, you know, the incidence of depression is up to 20% of the population is depressed at some point in time. And stress and depression are going to become or are becoming the number one. They are going to overtake cardiac disease, diabetes, uh, the whole lot. Uh, it, it's going to become the number one in the, in the 21st century. Is there such a thing as situational depression or is this all chemical changes in the brain? What's actually going on here? Yeah, what you've alluded to, Doug, is what we would call... Um, the difference between a a reactive depression and then when the depression becomes what we call endogenous, when it starts becoming biochemical. So reactive depression is, for example, well, like in this whole COVID era now, a lot of people have lost their jobs. And as we know, losing a job is is a huge stressor. It's right up there in the list of stressors. And as a result of that, a person may f- feel depressed for days in response to a stressor, and it's a, an understandable response. 
99% of people would feel depressed if they'd lost their job. So it's reactive. But when, if that situation continues long enough, then it can become endogenous. In other words, that reactive depression can then, with over time, if it continues, then we start to see uh, what we call a major depression. And that there's a biochemical component, what we call a hypothalamic shift. In other words, there's certain vegetative physical changes that start to occur. The most common, predominant symptom would be sleeping problems or sleeping disorders. In other words, failure to or battling to fall asleep, early morning awakening, in other words, waking up in the middle of the night and then not being able to fall asleep again. The other alternative is just sleeping such that you can't get up. So we get people sleeping till 10, 11, 12 in the morning and they can't get up. And when they wake up, they're as whacked as when they went to bed. So there's the sleeping disorders. Then we've got concentration difficulties, which could also lead to problems, you know, forgetfulness. The major one would be lack of energy and a reduction in physical activity. There could be, in terms of weight and eating patterns, either a, a marked decrease or increase in weight due to appetite changes. Either way, either no appetite or too much. Then we also have a libido. The libido would be reduced. And then finally, we would have suicidal ideation. In other words, suicidal thoughts that would accompany this whole set of physical symptoms. So depression is a real illness. We shouldn't just think that we can get over it or toughen up or whatever it is we feel about it. This is something that's quite serious. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's something that you, you need to take very, very seriously if you and or uh, a member of your family are experiencing these symptoms. And the thing is that if a person is in a full-blown depression or what we call a major depression or endogenous depression, they find it very difficult to respond to even psychotherapy such that in terms of when we talk about treatment, then person would require some form of antidepressant to correct the biochemical imbalance. Yeah. Just to extend that a little bit, and because we're talking or we're directing this podcast to a religious community, perhaps religious folk feel that they shouldn't suffer from depression or for that matter, any mental illness. And if they do, it creates extra difficulty for them because they're dealing not only with the illness itself, but with the fact that they have a mental illness and perhaps feel that they shouldn't have. Yet, if we look at the Bible, some of the great characters in the Bible seem to have struggled with depression. I'm thinking about David, Jeremiah, Elijah, Naomi, and of course, Job. In your opinion, is there still a stigma associated with mental illness in general and with depression in particular? Yes. Yeah, I think you raised an interesting point there, particularly in terms of our religious communities, because there is a sense that, you know, because we have a relationship with God, that that should insulate us from the things of the world like depression. And then I think that is a mistaken belief. Yeah. And so pretty much like if you have diabetes, 
then you would, uh, or type one diabetes, should I say, and you would, uh, and the doctor prescribes insulin, you would, you would take the insulin to restore that, that particular imbalance. And it's the same thing with depression. Like you correctly pointed out, you know, the, the, the Old Testament and in the New Testament, I, I want to remind the listeners that our Lord went through periods of, of deep sadness and depression in the desert and also in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, the, the Bible says he, you know, he sweated blood. So if our Lord himself, you know, had to suffer these feelings of, of sadness and depression, particularly in our Lord's case, when he was let down by his disciples, then certainly if we happen through life circumstances to be put in a situation where we are battling and we require an antidepressant to restore the chemical imbalance if there is uh, one diagnosed via the symptoms, then I think God works through the doctors. God speaks to us through different people and circumstances and things. So I think we should not close ourselves off to that. And that belief that we should not experience this or that can, I think, be self-damaging, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And this whole thing about mental illness and the stigma with mental illness is, is quite irrational. As you've so rightly said, if, if we have something going wrong with us physically, we don't think twice, we go to the doctor. And yet there's this cover-up in some cases to deal with your own mental illness or your mental state. And we try and get through it or think that we're lacking in faith or for whatever reason, we don't want to deal with it. Yes. Let me say this, and I, and I say this to all my secular audiences as well, is that the church is a huge resource. In the church, we have fellow Christians, brothers and sisters who can support us in tough times. And the research is actually very clear that there's what we call the stress buffering hypothesis, which suggests that those people who have a support group, be it a church or a sports club or whatever their particular support group might be, they are far less prone to breaking down from stress than people who don't. I think that we need to be encouraged as Christians that we have a most natural a basis of support in the church. And that's the saddest thing about, for me, that, that what COVID has done is that in any sense, it's impaired our ability to fellowship and to support one another. And people are now having to do that solely via the WhatsApp and the social media, which mm. is not quite the same thing. No, no. So, so yes, it's a two-sided sword. But if a person being in a community, but given this, this particular circumstances of their life, and despite having a supportive, a prayerful uh, group around them, still battling, then they need to uh, realistically look at their situation and then be guided by the medical professionals that are there to help them. Okay. Just one question. Who do I go to if I'm depressed? Do I go and see a psychologist? Do I go and see a psychiatrist? What is the difference between the two? Yeah. Okay. Look, um, a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who has specialized in psychiatry and they would then, they work largely within the medical model. So if one went to them, their primary method of treatment would be medication. Okay. Uh, some are trained, but they're still in the minority. Some are trained in some forms of psychotherapy, but the majority, it would be 
make a diagnosis and then prescription. Describe and then they would usually refer on to, to somebody like a psychologist. A psychologist is somebody who has studied psychology from first year to master's level and done an internship. And we as psychologists treat through psychotherapy. In other words, we aren't able to prescribe, but we are able to then assist with the behavioral and cognitive changes that are needed in order to deal with anxiety, depression, and whatever the the psychological complaint might be. Okay, thanks for that, Tony. I think that's important. Yes, I'm sorry to interrupt there. So in other words, people can start at any angle. Sometimes people start with their their GP, who they have a a good relationship with. At the GP, they would obviously just get the antidepressant, but you know, good GPs would, if they recognize a depression, would refer the person on to a psychologist as well as prescribing the antidepressants. Unfortunately, a lot of people, though, they get half a loaf. They don't get the full bread. They will either just get the medication side of it. Uh, some might start with a psychologist, but I think the ideal, the literature is very clear that the ideal form of treatment for depression is both medication and psychotherapy. You mentioned the power and the importance of having a group of supportive people around you as we do in the church. Are there any other steps that I as an ordinary person can take to perhaps prevent depression in the first place? Yeah, I think it also depends on your worldview and what I would call psychological coping skills. Some people are able to handle stress better than others. One of the things that I'm particularly interested in is the difference between optimism and pessimism, because we find in the research that pessimists tend far more to become depressive than optimists. So it's also, and I would believe that those of us who are informed by our faith would have an innate way of looking at the world in a way that is going to bring out good, rather than the bad. So I think also there, having a Christian worldview can also assist. But it also depends on coping skills. The ability to deal with stress is a huge one nowadays. Yes. Whether people have the flexibility to deal with sometimes very, very difficult situations. So that's probably the short answer to your question there. Thank you. And the counter side of that question is, are there any things that I should avoid in tough times because they could perhaps trigger even a mild depression, which then could lead on to something more serious? I'm thinking about uh, things like the standard would be alcohol. We know we've had an alcohol ban in the country. Uh, What would your view be on things to avoid? Yeah, well, I work at a clinic here in in the southeast of Johannesburg in Alberton, and I see coming through our doors every day, every week, every month are people who have addictions. And uh, if you dig deep into the story of people with addictions, you will see that they use the alcohol or the particular drugs. And by the way, also prescription drugs. Let's not forget prescription drugs. There's a whole area there. People abusing tranquilizers, your benzodiazepines, marijuana, which is now legal, and uh, using those substances to deal with the issues. The problem, of course, becomes is when these substances become addictive, then you've got another problem. So you've got a secondary problem to the primary issue, 
which the person is trying to deal with. So one needs to definitely avoid those. There are obviously other things like exercise and a reasonable diet, sleep, adequate sleep are the things that people should do more of in terms of dealing with the challenges that we experience nowadays. Is there a link between sugar and depression? Yes. If we look at at diabetics because of the problems around uh, sugar and intake and insulin and all that, one of the symptoms is fluctuating moods. So sugar is definitely something that, that I would advise people to go lightly on because sugar and all the other kind of wonderful things like pastries and ice creams and all that too much of a good thing is a bad thing and uh, mm. and that can create its own problems also we talk about comfort eating so people would use then food as a way of dealing with their moods yeah so yeah. so we can find people on the one end eating too much in order to deal with their depressed or anxious mood and then we can also find the other way where people are just not eating enough or properly Okay. Tony, you've brought in a lot of things in a very short space of time. So my next question is, if I wake up, say, tomorrow morning, and for whatever reason, I have a mild depression, and it lingers, before running to my doctor or to a psychologist or psychiatrist, is there something I should do to try and get rid of that depression? Or should I immediately start thinking about going to a professional? At what point do I go to a professional? Look, you know, I I think it's a question of time. I think the standard definition is two weeks or longer. If these symptoms persist, then one should think about going to see a professional. But two or three days, I would regard that as part of a, a normal spectrum of behavioral response. Like I say, if we get to two weeks or more of consistently depressed mood together with some of these symptoms, then I think that would be sort of a little red flag to go and and seek a, a professional help. Tony, one of the questions from the listeners was, is there anything non-drug related I could take that could help my depression? We hear talk about vitamin B, for instance, uh, 5-HTP, these supplements that you can buy from the pharmacy. Uh, In your experience, is there anything there that stands out as being of help to someone with depression? The homeopathic stuff like, for example, St. John's Wort can help. But what we found there is that you've got to be taking it for about four, five, six months before you're going to see any tangible benefit right. or yeah, noticeable reduction in, in symptoms. And the problem is in that time, a person can get pretty depressed and maybe even suicidal. Uh, I, you know, I think they can help, but if the symptoms still persist, I think that you know, one will need to rely on some allopathic form of medicine to restore the imbalance then. Right. Is depression normally caused by one incident or is it something that builds up over time? Yeah, I think both. We have stressors, things can happen, loss, sudden loss can lead to depression, loss of loved ones, loss of, like I said, a job. So that can be sudden, can lead to an onset in depression. And then we can have a a cumulative buildup. I would call it what we call um, almost learned helplessness type of depression, where a person is in a particular situation and they try in their own way to deal with it. 
And whatever they try doesn't seem to have a positive consequence or outcome. What we have then is the person, every time the person tries something, there's no positive feedback or the action does not lead to a positive outcome. And that then the person starts becoming despondent and can then go into a depression. And this could be cumulative over, let's say, weeks or even months. So you can have both models at work here in mind. Right. If I leave depression, or maybe I just don't recognize it, you've mentioned suicide is obviously one of the very serious things that can happen. Are there any other crippling effects of depression if it's left unmanaged? Well, yeah, I think the the ultimate is depression. And I, I really, if people get to that point, I really want to strongly counsel them to get help. This is where that supportive community comes in, because if people around the particular person or patient can see that something's not right, then they can, as a form of support, execute some form of intervention where they can point out to the person, look, you know, we've been watching you now for weeks or month or more, and you don't seem to be happy. Perhaps we need to get you to some professional help. So they can nudge the person forward I think the worst thing that can happen is people see signs and then they don't, for whatever reason, they're scared to either embarrass the person or are embarrassed about what the other person will think of them and uh, and they do nothing. And then we find all of a sudden one day they walk into the the lounge or garage and there's the person dead in front of them, which is the worst possible thing that anybody can, can walk into. I know in my own experience, a a friend of mine did exactly that. And uh, it was a case of being very distressed. And his wife went into the kitchen to make some tea just to try and calm him down. Uh, They were living overseas at the time. And uh, he literally just jumped off the balcony. I mean, you can just imagine the the shock with, with that kind of action. It is a terribly serious thing when people start getting depressed and, and you don't do something about it or don't mm. know what to do about it. Yeah. Rather do something, even if it's not exactly the right thing, but rather do something than not at all because the guilt of not at all is far worse than the potential downside of confronting the person and getting a negative response. Yeah. But people, when they're depressed, uh, their relationships tend to be a little bit strained. Would I be right in saying that? So they they perhaps would be driving people away from them? We very often with the, you know, depressive symptoms goes with a certain level of withdrawal where people just keep to themselves. They don't socialize as previously, either with their friends or within their family setting. So they go inwards, and uh, and this is usually very noticeable to people in the immediate vicinity. Right. And I think that if people uh, notice that, that is definitely a sign of for some intervention. Leading on from that, uh, a question from another listener is that: How do you know if someone who is close to you is perhaps depressed, how do you know if they are contemplating suicide and what do you do if you think they are at risk? 
Well, very often people will give clues and they will make comments, you know, like I'd be better off if I were dead or you guys would be better off if I were dead, things like that. And I think people should take that very, very seriously. And if that occurs more than once or even occurring once, there needs to be some kind of discussion within either the couple or the family or extended family with that person. Usually these type of comments would they wouldn't occur in isolation. So there would be other symptoms that people would be able to notice, like withdrawal, like apathy, like just a general negativity mm. that they would be able to pick up on. So I guess for me, you know, people need to, and I think this is what, what caring about one another is all about, is, is they need to be an observant if they do pick up such behaviors to follow up on them and to not ignore them. Uh, because, you know, that's when we find the tragedies that do occur. I think you raised a very important point is that people often are perhaps a little bit timid to take a bold step and talk to people. So they'd rather just not do anything. And of course, that's exactly the wrong thing to do, isn't it? Okay. Tony, another question, again, from a listener who suffers from depression Is it true that depressed people often struggle to get going or to do the things they feel they need to do? This leads to a guilt that leads to more depression. Do you have any advice on someone who's in that cycle of struggling to get going, feeling guilty, feeling depressed about not getting going? So it goes on. Yeah. Look, let me say this, and this is my own personal philosophy coming out here. Guilt is not useful. Guilt does not change anything in the situation. It's what one does. It's the behavior that counts. Mm -hmm. So my advice would be, you know, old um, Frank Sinatra had that song, you know, doobie, doobie, do, strangers in the night. But the point being, you got to do in order to be in order to do, in order to be. So basically, we have to do things in order to get that positive feedback. Because if we do nothing, we get nothing, we stay where we are. So um, my advice would be, pick a small behavior. Anything might just be making your bed or something pretty easy to do. And to start doing those kind of things, if people are in a bit of a slump, and start building up momentum via smaller behaviors and then building on that. The worst thing, in my view, that a depressive can do is to do nothing. Do nothing, you get nothing, you, you get no feedback, there's no movement, you stay exactly where you are. That, for me, is the worst thing. So we got to just keep moving. Uh, that, that's what I would say. Even if it is an inch at a time, just keep keep going. Yes, absolutely. Just you know, you get the small things. Um, make the behavior tiny, but you know, start doing it, and then that feeling of success builds on to more behavior and more behavior, and then we get the train going. It's like an old steam train. You'll remember that, Doug. Yeah. You know, just yeah. getting that. You know, getting the the train out of the station. Those first few hundred meters are slow. But once that momentum is built up, then the train gets moving. And then it's a, it's another story. Yeah. Uh, last question from a listener. When will it all end? And I think that ties up with my concluding question to you is, what kind of treatment can we expect for depression 
if we come to see someone like yourself? And is there a good success rate, Tony? Can you offer us hope? When will it all end? Well, look, I mean, that's a deeply spiritual question. I think we as Christians, we believe in the resurrection, the kingdom. So that's where we're heading. There's another aspect that I didn't raise here that perhaps I should. When we come to the treatment of depression, there are two basic avenues that we can go. The one is the outpatient treatment, whereby we see the person maybe once, depending if it's a pretty serious situation, twice a week as an outpatient. But sometimes when people are extremely depressed, they can't get out of bed, they're not functioning properly, we would then take the decision as a practitioner to admit them to a facility like the one that I work at in Alberton, where we would admit the person for a week, 10 days, two weeks, depending. Uh, And there they would would get what we call a kind of a multidisciplinary approach. They would see their psychologist like myself once a day, the psychiatrist, and they would be in groups with fellow depressive or anxious patients where they would learn that they are not on their own, that there are other people who suffer the same symptoms and syndromes that they do. And also the way they can learn coping techniques via the psychologist or therapist facilitators. That's like the the Rolls-Royce treatment, I think, because it is intensive. There's your maximum chance for a shorter turnaround. Outpatient therapy takes a bit longer. So what we can do in the in a clinic in 10 days is going to take us three months in private practice very often. But it's all determined by the situation that the person is in. They would obviously have to be admitted under a psychiatrist. So it's got to be a very serious situation. But those are the two models. What I will say is this, is that our success rate with depressives and people suffering from anxiety as well is a lot, lot higher than it is for addiction. Depression, the medication nowadays is not like it used to be many years ago. There's been lots of developments in the pharmaceutical arena. Also in the psychotherapy side, we're using newer models of psychotherapy. I think the package that is offered to depressive patients nowadays is way better than 20, 30 years ago uh, when I started my training. Right, yeah. Tony, thank you very much for your time this evening. It's been a real privilege to talk to you. We look forward to our next session, which will be on a subject which is related to depression, isn't it? And that's resilience. For this evening, thank you. And uh, we'll chat soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Doug. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember that this podcast is not therapy, so it's not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any mental health disorder. Always seek the guidance of your doctor, psychologist, or other qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding your mental health or a medical condition. All content and media in this series are created and published online for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice and should not be relied on as personal health advice. Any external links provided to other websites or educational material are followed at your own risk.